0: Let's get legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association here on 720 WGN. Michael Leonard, how are you doing, my friend? Good, John. How are you? Good. It's all. I love when I see that you're on the schedule to chat because you always are a fascinating dude to talk with.
1: So are you, John. Oh. So are you.
0: Okay, <laughs> I teed you right up for that.
1: For people that don't know you, give us a little bit of your background. Sure. As, as we've talked about before, I try a lot of cases and uh, focus probably about 75% on federal and state criminal cases, mm-hmm. and then the other 25%... Representing individuals in whistleblower cases and employment cases against uh, big companies, and and
0: you're the you're a defense attorney.
1: I am, well, I'm I'm defense in criminal cases. Right. In the civil cases, I'm representing the little guy, the good guy, John, against the big corporations.
0: So you're kind of always representing the little guy, no matter the situation. Yeah, it's, against it's, the man.
1: It's fun. It's fun going against the man, as we as we have discussed. Michael versus the man.
0: <laughs> that should just be what you call the firm instead.
1: Larry, yeah, yeah. Michael. yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that, from a marketing standpoint, that would go very well, but. You know. <laughs> I guess we could try. Wow, way to insult my marketing prowess there.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, so, uh, by the way, did you have an answer to the question of the day? What Massachusetts was the last state to out to, to to release their ban on in 1980?
1: Well, the only answer I could come up with, which is a bad one, is that maybe the people of Boston decided to let people who weren't from boston live in their town but uh I, I don't think that's the right answer you think they're a little territorial in boston Yeah, I'd say a little bit are chicagoans a little that way too yeah we're pretty bad too but boston seems even worse but yeah. we'll, you'll probably get some calls on that hopefully john yeah with the, with the with the breadth of, of the range of your station yeah.
0: <laughs> yes if you're listening to wgnradio.com and you're in boston give us a call 312-981-7200 uh, <laughs> okay you've got to tell me I saw your notes this morning. I didn't know if you were just looking for me to respond to the email or what, but you said that the first thing you wanted to talk about was shark bites.
1: What are we talking about here? Well, sure. Well, first of all, you know, with with this show being sponsored by the Illinois State Bar Association, Uh aren't we also trying to prove that lawyers are people, too? Yes. At at least allegedly, right?
0: Uh, Yes. Uh So.
1: So I had an idea that we should introduce this this topic. Where many years ago I represented these individuals, a, a husband and wife, that had a case in Florida that we were fighting, and a case in California we were fighting. So they they dubbed me their shark for for my aggressive nature. But
0: wait, you were fighting two cases for this couple, yeah, in yeah, two different states.
1: Yeah, they were basically whistleblowers in two cases in Florida and California, and so but we had to travel a lot because of that. So then mm-hmm. together, so they would say I'm their shark because they liked my aggressive nature, but. They also noticed that as we would travel and go to these different towns, I'd always be looking for the the hole-in-the-wall place to go to to eat, right? Uh So they said, you should do a... You should do a cookbook or book called shark bites right oh. and of course i never did it but what a great opportunity to introduce the concept to your show uh-huh. you know and also kind of test your own street cred john oh and this is trouble yeah it could be Wait, are it you gonna do
0: some trivia with me or something no well so
1: when you go to any new city as, as a trial lawyer you got to discover that hole in the wall mm-hmm. that hidden gem that sandwich shop that pizza slice place right mm-hmm. so but why why don't we start with chicago And, you know, throw one out there, which I think is a quintessential shark bike location, which is is worthy of that, which is, I'll say, for the the topic of sub sandwiches, I would go with Bari, Bari Grocery Store on Grand Avenue in Chicago as making the best subs in Chicago. It's a little tiny Italian grocery store on Grand Avenue, a little west of Milwaukee. Okay. And it's about three aisles. It goes, it's probably only about 20 feet deep. Uh But at the back of the store... If you've never been in there, there's the deli counter where there's like four or five guys making subs furiously because it's so popular. So okay. I would throw that out as the first Shark Bikes location. Okay, in and Chicago. then see if see what you first of all are you even aware of it, John? No, I not.
0: And I used to live by near Grand in Milwaukee too, a little bit northwest of there. I'm surprised. So it's a grocery slash they'll make your sandwich. Yeah, so you. it's
1: a little grocery store, but really what they're famous for is the subs in the back. Okay. so I would throw that out as as the best Chicago sub, worthy of a, of a Shark Bite visit by any attorney here or a citizen right can i give you a can i give you one of my own as a yeah, I'd like, to, and it would be kind of a test of your credibility right jp graziano's sure west sure. loop i'm not that familiar with it to be honest okay
0: with yeah Four generations, it's been around since 1937 at Randolph and just west of Halsted. so I think Green. Mm, and okay. uh, they've reinvested. They used to be a wholesaler of Italian groceries. Okay, And the fourth uh, guy who's taking over now, Jim, he's the great-grandson of the guy who originally started it. Good. He pivoted a little bit more to sub-sandwiches. It saved him during COVID because the West Loop has changed so much. So many people live there now. He just opened up a window. We're able to sell the sandwiches through there. And you, when you walk in, Michael, it smells like there's olive oil and spices Uh, in. The floorboards. Oh, that's awesome.
1: That's yeah. Awesome. It sounds very worthy. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think you've you've proven your your all right your, your <laughs> worth on the Shark Bite topic.
0: Right. I'm lucky that I host a show called Chicago Food to Go, where we go to different food spots around the area as well. Oh, do you? So, yeah, exactly. Oh, I've, I
1: haven't heard that. I got to check that out. Yeah. Well, great.
0: Thanks. Well, we got to get one more viewer. Thanks a lot, Michael Leonard. All right, that's good. So, are you are you speaking this into the ether so that you eventually do write this book? This um, Shark Bite. I think
1: I'll never get around to it, but if if I periodically appear on your show, we can introduce different cities yes. and, and use the concept of shark bites for that particular city
0: well and also we've got a fifty thousand watt megaphone right here 312-981-7200 sure where is your shark bite in chicago and then each time you come on, we'll pick another city. How sure. does
1: that sound? That sounds great. I'm, I, I'm all aboard. I want to know where to go in Pittsburgh, Milwaukee. Well, my wife will hate that this actually gained some traction with you because she's tired of me coming back from a trip and saying, hey, how the trial go? was awesome. We won. But I found this great deli in Kansas City <laughs> or this amazing cheeseburger in Detroit. You know, so
0: Do you do the same thing with like watering holes, too? Like you find the dive bar? Oh, I love right? them. I love yeah. them. But
1: I would put out there my favorite, which no longer exists, sadly johnny's used to be on lincoln we talked about that right nice near thing, Southport. Yeah. that was the, that was the best ever yeah
0: yeah there's some i like archie's tavern it's at rockwell and walton maybe one block south rockwell and rice i think Old place, one of the first liquor licenses they gave back after Prohibition. Corner corner spot, they've got a big big marlin on the wall, one pool table, dogs nice. are allowed inside, yeah. and a big thing of cheese balls you can eat. So
1: yeah, and the sad go. part of is there's so few of those great places left. That's the sad part, even in Chicago, you know? You just want to talk about this for an hour? Yeah, sure. I'm <laughs> sure it would be much more interesting than law to our <laughs> listeners, you know? But uh, we we can also touch upon the law if you want. Yeah,
0: no, for sure. 312-918-7200, By the way, what, what did you what else?
1: uh you 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 mentioned the whole escape crisis and with the with the couple? Of are the, you tracking
0: that? Are yeah, you that's watching really that? Really
1: interesting. So I saw the article you're talking about. It mm-hmm. said the headline of why Americans are so fascinated with these escape. Had you know plots and mm-hmm. all that stuff. What what was their conclusion? Why we love it so much?
0: Uh, I think it's the that we like it because it's current and the adrenaline of it, and it's like voyeuristic that we can imagine ourselves where we would go, what we would do, and we can kind of live vicariously through that. Not that we, because most of us are law-abiding citizens who would never do any of the things that are alleged in this case or others. Yeah. But there's a fascination behind it,
1: right? Oh, I totally find myself fascinated. I'm watching every day to figure out where what's the next clue. Where where are they? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's great. And I think don't you think that most people, as they watch and think about, it, they're like kind of hoping these people continue to be on the land for longer. They they right. want they don't they don't want them to get caught. Don't you think that? I
0: think that people. I I think that in their heart of hearts, if they, you know, they were like, well, someone's going to be in danger. If if we knew that something happened at the end that was bad, people would say, no, let's get them yeah. where they need to go. But, yeah, I, I think we're just fascinated by the, the length of it, too, the drama unfolding. We have very few things in our lives. You know, everything's so instantaneous. We get resolutions so quickly. Even the TV shows we binge. Yeah. We find out a day later what happened because we yeah. watched the whole thing. There's something serial about it. It's almost like our old radio shows and yeah. adventures and detective stories. I
1: think the tough one with this guy to hide is he's, he's six, nine, Right. So- it seems like anywhere he gets out of his car or goes into anywhere, he'll be like a target, be so obvious. So right. I think that's would be an interesting angle. How does he keep? How does he avoid right. the public view? So you would you would hope you would think not hope, but you would think they're probably hunkered down somewhere. Yeah, you know?
0: and also it makes it interesting. I think and why it's fascinating to us um, is because and we're by the way, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the correctional officer who seemingly, allegedly, helped this uh, you know murder suspect who was waiting trial on it uh, escape from prison. They might be lovers. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't quite know for sure yet, but basically helped him get out. And, and they left their car in Nashville. That was a week ago. So I think there's also this element of they could be I could be look out this window right now, right? And then yeah. they could be here, they could be there. Yeah. And there's uh uh it makes your heart putter a little bit, right? No,
1: no doubt, yeah. It's it's really, really fascinating. I'm I'm definitely uh like we you watching every day. Yeah, for sure. Have you been watching the uh Johnny Depp trial at all?
0: I you know, speaking of voyeuristic, I don't like watching two people fight and really dive into personal stuff, and I think it's sort of a shame on all of us for looking in. But then I do read the
1: summaries, right? Like, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: But I can't, I can't watch it live or watch watch the video. It's too. It it hurts me a little bit. to
1: Yeah. Watch. Well, I was kind of surprised. First of all, he's the one that filed this case. He mm-hmm. filed the lawsuit in Virginia State Court saying that I was defamed by Amber Heard, right? Right. Um, which I thought was a really interesting choice because he had gone to trial in England, claiming mm-hmm. that the newspaper had defamed him, and lost that case. And in that case, all this information came out about him that was extremely negative that he beat her up that. A lot of negative things about his personality, drug use, all that stuff was really aired. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised that he made the choice then to come back to the States, litigate another case where the allegations and all his conduct were going to be an issue again. So I'm a little surprised. Yeah. Um, The other thing I found really surprising is I was talking to one of my kids about the case who's in high school and his view of you know what he's been consuming in on the news and social media versus what i have mm-hmm. completely different really he basically told me that everybody in his age group believes that johnny depp's going to win they believe johnny depp they don't believe amber heard which i was shocked at because my in my age group and what i'm reading it's exactly the opposite Interesting. yeah yeah what what what's your take on what you're reading
0: i'm reading to the same thing that she feels like people in her age group she's a little younger than me but same thing yeah. on twitter i just see so much pro johnny depp stuff as opposed to uh, the other way around i wonder yeah. what the what, what's at play there it actually may play into a question that jennifer has i'm we have to take a news break jennifer do not go anywhere that's an awesome question on the line we got a lot more to chat about with michael leonard but yeah the johnny depp thing is interesting um i wanted to ask you know obviously we're watching all these cameras just really quickly do federal cases the ones you do they allow cameras in those
1: courtrooms Generally, absolutely no. So, um, the federal cases, I think there's a, I think there's a ban still on them. So I've never been involved in a federal case where they actually televised it. I think requests have been made in various cases to do that have been rejected. There's no reason they couldn't be, Mm -hmm. but generally a lot of judges disfavor that. They think it takes away from the decorum of the court. They think it makes, act the lawyers uh, act differently maybe turn into actors there's a perception that you know witnesses might be influenced to testify differently i I don't know if i really believe any of that but you um, had a
0: slight smile on your face when you said it might make the lawyers act differently
1: well yeah would you play the cameras a little bit well i just think there's that danger certainly i mean i think that people could act a little differently knowing that the whole world or a large percentage population is watching your case i mean i think it would have to cross your mind what the perception is going to be of, of how you perform i mean maybe put a little extra pressure on you but uh i would certainly enjoy it yeah
0: all right it's a grab bag of questions today from michael leonard 312-981-7200 uh we'll answer them including jennifer's after the news here on wgn all right let's get legal powered by the illinois state bar association we got michael leonard from leonard trial lawyers leonard trial lawyers.com uh michael you want to put on your headphones if you don't mind you got a little dial there too because that's how you hear the callers okay you hear me Yes. All right, good. Headphones are working. Let's get Jennifer on the line. Jennifer, you have an awesome question. What is it? Thanks.
1: I, can't um, hear it, Jen, I know actually.
0: Mike has talked oh. a lot about representing a lot of people in criminal cases in both state and federal court. Mm-hmm. I was wondering whether Mike has represented any women in those criminal cases, and if he does, does that change
1: the strategy?
0: All right, so Michael, the caller wants to know, have you represented women in federal or state courts, and if so, does it change the strategy at all?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely have represented women in federal court and state court, more so in federal court. Um, it's interesting because in federal court, and they just came out with this on 2021, every year the federal the federal court comes out with, or the Federal Sentencing Commission comes out with a book called The Source Book, and it tells you all the stats mm-hmm. about all the people who came through the federal system who were sentenced in that year or who went to trial. Mm-hmm. So, So it shows you that... You know, 13% of the people that were sentenced last year were women in federal court versus, you know, 87% men. So okay. that just shows you that.
0: And does that remain pretty steady, that 13, 87? I, I think so, yeah. Okay. I think,
1: I mean, it might even be a little lower than that. I mean, my experience, I would have guessed without seeing the book, it was probably 10% women in federal court versus yeah. 90% 90, men. 90 versus, okay. that, So that seems pretty... Accurate. So, yeah, definitely have had case uh, for women in in federal court. And, you know, state court, I I would say those numbers are probably double Mm -hmm. uh, because there's more street crimes charged against women in state court, you know, versus federal court. Those cases wouldn't be typically charged. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in federal court, you still have drug crimes and you know conspiracies and fraud, so women would be charged in those types of cases. So uh, with regard to do you approach it differently, your strategy is different, I guess there's, there's a couple approaches or answers to that. Number one, you're, you're still doing all the same things you need to do in terms of investigating the case, working the case up. It doesn't matter if it's a, right. a male or a female. But I, what I think is different and gives you some opportunity is there, there's a perception and there's these stereotypes that still permeate our society. Mm-hmm. And I think that for trial purposes, and we'll talk about sentencing for trial purposes, I think that A jury is more willing to believe that your female defendant was coerced by a co-defendant who's a male, or boyfriend male co-defendant, or might be less culpable, and I think it kind of goes back to um, some of our stereotypical views of women. And
0: let me just say, you're not saying that is the case, you're saying that that's what you might be able to convince a jury of.
1: People people believe that, yeah, and and, and sometimes it's absolutely 100% true, Um, and then I think for sentencing purposes, when a woman is sentenced in federal court, I would say, um, I think there's There's, again, a much more willingness on behalf of the judges, and we can ask, you know, Judge Palmeier in a couple weeks when she's on your show, um, to view their role in the family in a different way. Because, you know, federal courts, just like state courts, can take into account mitigating factors. In federal court, we call those 33. 3553 factors in state court, just mitigation, right? But you can raise things like someone's extraordinarily fam- extraordinary family circumstances, their mm-hmm. role in the family, what impact a sentence would have on their family. And my experience, I think the federal court judges are more willing to give a break to a woman and say that we view her role in the family more paramount, it would cause a greater hardship on her children and her family, especially if they're a single mother in, in right. the case. Um, so I think there's, there's, there, there's those views that permeate the system as well. Um, so th- those realities or perceptions, I think obviously can have an impact about how you approach the case from a trial perspective and also from a sentencing perspective. And I just had, you know, uh, we were talking earlier, had an example of this week um and and I don't think that the the things I'm talking about were, were necessarily at play in terms of stereotypes about mm-hmm. women, but it was a female defendant in federal court who was sentenced. You know, it's a th- none of this is I'm not talking out of school, none of this okay. is none of this is non public. It's okay. a public proceeding where right. I'm not gonna give names. But it was an individual who was middle aged female, and again, like we talked about in federal court, that's you're only gonna have a female defendant probably ten percent of the time. And, you know, she had held a great, you know positions in 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 terms of professional work experience Mm -hmm. and but unfortunately had you know absconded or embezzled some money over the years right so she got charged with fraud and so we had a full sentencing hearing earlier this week on this case and as we've talked about or no yeah there was a plea okay so as you know the only the only two ways you end up at a sentencing hearing is you go to trial and lose right or you plea and, you know, you bring up kind of remarkable statistic. I looked at that source book we just talked about in 2021 uh, in federal court across the country, 98% of the cases uh, were ended by a plea. 1.7 were ended by a trial. 98 to and, 2, essentially. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So and I think, you know, that's a little bit of an anomaly because 2021 is a COVID year. So true, cases true. weren't going to trial. Right. But. As we've talked about, I think there's probably you know five percent of the cases probably f- in the federal system, or ten percent, maybe somewhere in that range, probably lower, go to trial uh, on, in an in, in an average year. So mm-hmm. but that was a remarkable year,
0: right? So you represented this woman, and yeah.
1: so you know, so you're what you're doing in, in these cases in federal court when you go to a sentencing is you know there's this big thing called the federal sentencing guidelines that you've heard about and we've talked about, and what that does it does a calculation about where a recommended sentence might lie. And that's not mandatory upon the judge. It's just something they have to consider. And the two big things are, what is the offense level? How serious is the crime? Okay. And then what is the person's criminal history? So, but the problem with that structure is that even though it's just a guideline, it's just a recommendation, oftentimes it sets this artificial floor. 100%. Right?
0: And we saw this in the Supreme Court hearings. Yeah. People really upset a yeah. lot of people, I should say some people that uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson went underneath those sentencing and it was seen as like this flabbergasted thing. Whereas then that's, that's a problem. Right?
1: Which, which was very misleading. And in, in the Supreme Court, uh, proceedings where they're talking about, hey, judge, you've, you've gone underneath the sentencing guidelines on a regular basis. Nowadays, every federal judge in the country regularly goes below those guidelines. Right. We now know that. That's a fact, right? For all so, sorts of cases. For all sorts of cases. Right. It's, it's a regular thing because it's just a guideline, as the Supreme Court has said. But in our case, you know, they, were, they were arguing the U.S. government that my female federal defendant should get somewhere in the range of three and a half to, to four and a half years And so, you know, you bring in things, mitigation, you know, you bring in the individual's role in the family, the fact that they have a special needs kid the hardship it'll be on having their mother gone, all those sort of factors. And you also, you know, get people to sort of attest to their character, usually in the form of letters rather than live testimony. And so, you know, we were arguing for no time in custody. The U.S. government was arguing, hey, three and a half, four years. And, and the judge, to his credit, you know, gave her about a one-year sentence, which mm-hmm. we were pleased with. But, you know, from a client perspective... You're never pleased another, but, right. with getting any sentence at all, but that's what happens in federal court. You know, sometimes a win, in quotation marks, right. is getting your client a, a much less sentence than what the government is arguing so for. So
0: to sum it all up, in terms of with a female defendants, is there are stereotypes that still exist that can come out and be... Well, I don't want to hate to say it like this, but used to your advantage as a defense attorney in trial or in sentencing, it's there and, and you're able to do that.
1: But but it's not, you know, it's not only that they're stereotypes. Sometimes they're absolutely true. Well, you know, especially so if single you have, moms. I yeah, mean, if you have a yes. defendant in federal court or in state court, and they have kids. Yes. And you're talking about the duration of their sentence. You're going to balance that against the severity of the crime, whether this person's a repeated offender and all those sort of things. And you might conclude that, you know, you don't need to put this person behind bars for as long as you might somebody else. And that's yep. just a mitigating factor.
0: Jennifer, that was a long answer. How you feel about that one? That was a great answer. That was a great <laughs> answer. It sure was. Thanks yeah. for listening, Jennifer. Okay. All right, thank you. Great show. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is this is not a place for short, quick answers here. That's what we do on Let's Get Legal. We try to filibuster, John. We <laughs> try to go all all keep going until you stop me from talking. You know. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I want to ask you about some January sixth stuff that you've been sure. following. Sure, I'd a- love to. Yeah, after the break here on WGN. Now it's my turn to talk. Now this is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. That's the problem, Michael Leonard. We have such great conversations during the commercial break. And I forget that we're on the air here.
1: Here we <laughs> Maybe go. We could put those on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Hey, I got a question from the text line, and this is a pretty serious one. I appreciate three one two for giving it to us. Um, can you talk about impact statements read at sentencing? My sister-in-law was killed. Justice hadn't been served. Given it had been almost three years since she was killed, the trial hasn't even occurred yet. First of all, so incredibly sorry for your loss. Text her and um, maybe their person is wondering about whether themselves or family members will need to give those impact statements.
1: What do you know about yeah. them? How do, they, how do they work? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear about that. That's, that's, that's horrible. Um, and also, it's got to be really frustrating as a victim to not get to trial speedily. Oh, okay. And I think the real frustration is because of COVID over the last two years, a, a very few cases have gone to trial. But you imagine the frustration mounting from family members who are impacted by these cases and they don't see justice done. Um, But in in 2020 and part of 2020, when there's really nothing the courts could do because they were virtually shut down, but it's not atypical even in non COVID years for cases take a long time to go trial, which is very frustrating for people who are involved in the case. Um, And the victim impact statements are really, I think an important piece and they come into play in, in, in different ways, depending upon what court you're in, you know, in federal court, it's more typical for what we're calling a victim impact statement to be submitted in the form of a letter to the judge because the federal sentencing pro- uh, federal sentencing process is typically more paper driven so you submit a brief on behalf of your client the government does the same there's a huge lengthy report called the psr that's done by a third party by U.S. probation. And the judge has all these written materials. And so because he, he or she has all these written materials, you want them to see those letters, those either character letters on behalf of the defendant or on the side of the government, you know, could be victim impact statements. And it's not just a physical fact it could be someone who's financially impacted it's it can also be because they've lost a loved one so uh, but also in federal court you'll sometimes see it's just more unusual to have people actually at the sentencing hearing and they get to speak and they get to address the court which I think is extremely moving impactful, and for very sure. very impactful I mean you you can hear a pin drop when when someone's you know giving a victim impact statement at federal court state court's a little different it would be much more typical not for that just to be in writing it would be someone actually appearing live um you know getting to face the defendant and look them down and and tell them really how this is impacted to their face you know some people don't want to do that Mm -hmm. and so they can certainly uh, submit it in writing or someone else can read it for them but i think it's a huge benefit you know um if you're if you're doing that on behalf of a victim, I think it's a huge benefit. The court really, I think, takes those seriously, and especially when someone's live, talking to them, look in their eyes, telling them how much this is impacted. And it's very different than reading it on a piece of paper.
0: I I've talked to someone who had to give one of those, and they said it was almost therapeutic, too. Yeah. They felt they didn't want to do it, but they thought that this would get maybe make an impact make that person go to jail longer and they felt like it was therapeutic afterwards now that that's not the case for everybody I'm yeah. not, I'm well, sure some people it, are traumatized by it
1: oh yeah and it's and it's tough to tell in a given case you know how much that moves the needle but from a perspective of a lawyer or someone who's in the in a courtroom in a proceeding, seeing that, it certainly feels like it has an yeah. impact. You know, you don't know before the judge takes the bench. I mean, let's, let's face it, they've, con- they've, they've given this a lot of thought and a lot of consideration before they come out there for the sentencing. Right. Period. So it's not like they're just shooting from the hip and deciding now it's going to be 14 years or right. whatever. They've given a lot of thought. However... I really do think victim impact statements, especially when given live, certainly can and do move the needle on a regular basis. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you
0: mind slapping those headphones on here? we got an interesting question from Tom. Hey, Tom, you're on WGN. Hello, how you doing? Good. What's your question? Well, one thing that's been overlooked in the
1: last several years is something called jury nullification. In the case of O.J. Simpson... Uh, the jury didn't even discuss the blood evidence, for example. I mm-hmm. would consider that a nullification where they ignore the evidence and for their own reasons, their own agenda, determine an outcome. Uh, this goes to the level of federal also with certain districts, as in Miami, when you want to prosecute uh, Cubans for trying to go to Cuba to cause havoc down there. They're intercepted or arrested. They're not, pro, they're not presented to the, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. will not prosecute them because they know the outcome of the jury trial. Mm. It, it's all because that, of
0: where it's being uh, held. Interesting. Todd,
1: yeah. so can you yeah. re- talk about that a little bit, Michael? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, it's something that is is a common issue that comes up no matter where you are, right? Yeah.
0: So what is jury nullification? What so
1: it's the idea that... a a jury is going to not follow the legal instructions given to them, right? So they're, they're given this set of instructions at the close of the case. Here's how you decide the case. Here's the elements the government had to prove to prove your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And here's the evidence presented. So what the jury's supposed to do is go back to the jury room, Apply these instructions. Did the government prove each of these three elements of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt? You know, and we apply the, the jury applies the evidence and the facts to each of those elements to make that decision. So, nullification goes to the concept of, hey, let's forget about the evidence and let's rely upon something such as sympathy, prejudice. We feel bad about the person. We don't think they should have been charged in the first place.
0: And this is okay to do?
1: No, no, no. Well, Those are examples of juror nullification, right? So, so, so the,
0: who would say, so they can say the jury's nullified. This
1: no, it. no, no, no. So the jury is not allowed to do that. So, okay. so, what, so what happens in a case is there's, there's always, let's, let's say in a typical federal case, one of the common motions filed by the government, by the prosecutor's office is, is called a motion in limine before the trial saying, hey, judge, you know, we want to stop defense counsel from arguing jury nullification, which, of course, we can't do anything. We, mm-hmm. we would get sanctioned. It's, it's unconstitutional. It's against the rules. We can't get up there and say, hey, jury, forget about the evidence you heard today. Uh-huh. You know, this is a really good guy. And he shouldn't have been charged. You can't be and an advocate no, for No, no, no. You, okay. you cannot seek jury nullification, right? Okay. And so, but, you know, the government, typically the prosecutors file these generic motions saying we're trying to stop counsel from arguing jury nullification. We're not. You know, we would get shut down in a second. Right. The judge would sanction us and, you know, we might lose our license. However... The concept in practice is, and what people's concerns are, and what the, what your listener just raised, is that juries do engage in jury nullification. Meaning, despite what the judge tells them, and there's always a jury instruction that says, "Hey, look, here's how you decide the case. Here's what you can't consider." So every set of instructions says you can't rely upon things such as prejudice or bias, or, and all those sort of forbidden factors, because they don't want people deciding. Well, hey, look you know, they proved it, but I think this, you know, I think this guy was targeted because of a particular reason, or I think the other guy is really the bad guy. Right. He wasn't charged, Um, you know, and what, what the caller was referring to, jury nullification in that case, the OJ case that he referred to, first of all, uh the, the obviously we've known, we know from the documentaries that m- many of the juries basically said, look, you know, we decided in large part, you know, based upon a race-based factor, right. which is a forbidden factor. Of course, there's nothing in a jury instructions that said you can consider right. Mr. Simpson's race. But the jury candidly said after the fact, of course, we took that into, into account. They nullified the instructions given to them by relying upon a factor that was forbidden for them to consider by the court. But is
0: there anything the state can do after the fact, once a jury says that? No, can, can no. Can juries... Can no. a juror be arrested
1: for no. admitting to that? No. No, I mean, it, it's done. What's done is done. And, you yeah. know, the, the thing that happens in, in, with the jury trial, once it's over, it's almost impossible to file a motion that you could succeed on in which you're arguing that the jury did something wrong and therefore, or considered something improper and therefore it should be vacated. The only times that you can succeed on that, uh, typically is if you can prove that someone did their own investigation. They were posting on social media about the case. Uh They lied about their ability to serve on the jury or lied during the voir dire process. But otherwise, it's really difficult. Courts really hesitate to ever get into the inner workings of the jury room. Yeah, for sure.
0: Michael Leonard, this has been another fascinating day. I can't believe we're out of time. Do you want good, to stick good around?
1: Good to be here. Can you stick around for a little uh, bit longer? Can I? Can I do two more hours? Do
0: <laughs> you <laughs> mind sticking around? I have one sure. more topic I want Absol- to get to. Absolutely. Right, Let's tell do you it. What, we'll take a break. We'll do the right. news. We'll have a little bit more with Michael yeah. Leonard after this on WGN. Thank you very much, voiceover man, Ernie. Yes, this is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We'll talk a little Roe v. Wade coming up with Professor Leroy from the University of Illinois. Uh, we're talking with Michael Leonard right now from leonardtriallawyers.com. Do you mind if I try and get an answer to the question of the day, Michael? Go for it, I know you're so curious about this. Go for it, I can't wait. Yeah, 1980, Massachusetts, where it's the last state to outlaw what? Let's go to Dan. Dan, you're on WGN. Hey, Dan.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Good, what's your guess? Assault rifles. Good guess. Not the answer, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sorry, Dan. Let's go to Dave. How are you doing, Dave? moderately neato oh you're doing moderately okay it sounds good what what's your guess how about uh blue laws so sure they have stores open uh, uh, prohibiting stores open on sunday massachusetts the last state to ban stores opening on sunday no that's a great guess though dave thanks for playing i'm sorry your day didn't get much better there thank you much all right we had dan we have dave and now we have dennis three d's dennis how you doing my friend very good, yourself. I'm doing great. What's your uh, What's your guess? Right turn on red. Right turn on red, and that is the answer wow. to the question of the day. Wow, yes, that's good. States, especially in the western states, had long stopped banning right turns on red. But during the energy crisis of the '70s, the Carter administration really pushed for more states to allow a right turn on red. The thought being, it keeps traffic going, not as much idling. Massachusetts was the last holdout, and they started threatening to withhold federal funding to Massachusetts unless they got rid of the law. It was a big deal, and not every state or not every municipality followed through, but they said that initially 10% they allowed 10% of their uh, intersections to be a right turn on red. And,
1: and is there a reason why Massachusetts thought that was a bad thing?
0: A lot of it was pedestrians. They had oh, a lot okay. of pedestrian crosswalks, and they really feared, and it, the data has borne out. There are more crashes at right-turn intersections involving yeah. pedestrians or not. Huh. But the overall uh, sense was there. Interesting. Ten- Dennis, how would you know that answer? Well...
1: I seem to remember something from Driver's Ed.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you didn't just say Google it. That's good, Dennis. Tell you what. Hang on the line. We're going to get you a prize, a $50 gift card to the fifty fifty restaurant group to be used at any one of their 14 fantastic establishments all over Chicago. He including... does
1: not get a, a John Hansen t-shirt? No,
0: no. Wow. No. Let wow. me read this. Sp- That's cold. Let me make sure I finish the sponsor read there, Michael. Roots Pizza and Westtown Bakery is where he can go. He should get a John Hansen t-shirt. We in? Can we get on the decals for that? Yeah she 's got that, hey, Michael, before I let you go The January sixth trials have continued a lot of pleas, some have been starting to go to trial it 's taken a long time. Your general reaction to some of the either the sentences that we 've seen or the or the cases how they played
1: out i guess i 'm not too surprised. I mean they charged hundreds of people and there's been Hundreds of pleas. There's probably been 90, 95 percent of them have pled guilty. A very small handful have chosen to go to trial, Mm -hmm. including the most recent one you were talking about. And I think in his case, it was more charged as a felony and as a assault.
0: The case I'm talking about, by the way, is Aaron Mostofsky. He's 35. If you can picture the pictures that you all saw, he was wearing raccoon fur and a police garb on. And he was sentenced to eight months in prison for his role in it.
1: Yeah. And so I think a lot of people chose not to go to trial because they're misdemeanor offenses. So they Mm -hmm. knew that they were going to get probably a slap on the wrist and there was no reason for them to go to trial. In the case you're talking about, I think there's been a backlash because that defendant, I guess his father is a judge, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. And so when they heard the sentence, they were disturbed at how low it was. But I think, as you pointed out, his federal sentencing guideline range was pretty low. It was 10 to 16 months. Yeah, so so he got an eight-month sentence, which is below the guidelines, but which is also, though, common. However, in a case like this, I can see a reason why you would want to give a more severe sentence because there is this perception that the person's getting treated differently because their they're, um, relative is a judge.
0: But isn't that even harder on the judge or lose-lose because then the judge has to say, well, I can't just give this kid, yeah. I shouldn't say kid, he's 35 years old, a man, a sentence because his son is, I can't try and for propriety's sake. So they really... Judges have tough jobs.
1: It's tough. Well, but the way that can come into play in a federal sense in particular is that there's the one of the factors they have to consider, which they do in state court too, is the concept of deterrence. Okay, mm-hmm. Specific deterrence, will this particular individual be specifically deterred by, by my sentence? And also general deterrence, right? So what impact will this sentence have on criminals, essentially defendants in general? Mm-hmm. You could make the argument in that case that, for purpose of general deterrence to try to send a message to society that a higher sentence might have achieved the goal of general deterrence better than giving him a lower sentence so that's where that could come in and it would be a legitimate consideration by the judge
0: and i've been reading some judges opinions on these or when they issue sentencing and they allude to something along those lines that this cannot happen in this country and we need the message to go forth that that is the case At the same time, you got to try the person or give the sentence to the person in front of you, right? And what the facts of the case are.
1: You got to balance both those things. I mean, I think as the judge who's going to be on your show in a couple of weeks will point out, it's a difficult task. You're balancing this whole life history this person's had, oftentimes a defendant might come before you who's had multiple convictions. You have to take that into account. And then you have your face with a with a defendant who has no criminal history at all, but has done something you know very bad. Right. And how do you balance that? How do you deter that person? How do you deter other people who might be taking cues from that sentence? The, the reality is in, in a lot of cases, which I think the January sixth doesn't fit in this category, but in a lot of other cases, there really really is no societal deterrent effect. you know mm-hmm. no one's paying attention to so many of these cases but right. this one they are they are so you can appropriately send a message and it's still consistent with the sentencing guidelines to do that because you're you're taking to the factor, like we said general deterrence upon others
0: right and i think that they want to rid the notion of oh well you know a bunch of people walked in there a bunch of people were spraying bear spray at police officers i just got caught up in the moment i think they really want to send a message that is not an excuse for this
1: they do and i think uh, a little bit maybe surprisingly i think that there was this perception that the people that did go to trial who were raising this defense that, hey, it's my president told me to do it. Mm-hmm. That's failed miserably. No, no one has bought that at all. But I think there was the idea that that was going to gain some traction. And maybe if he was still was the president, maybe that defense would work better. Mm-hmm. But people have really seem, seemingly soundly rejected that approach.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a complicated thing, and I I find myself I'm way too often, I feel like I'm way too sympathetic to people. Because I have read testimony of defendants who have, you know, argued that, look, they got swept up in moments, and I believe a lot of that, right? And they've been bought into conspiracy theories online, and that happens to people. I've had friends and family who go down that route, so you are sympathetic. But then I try to, like, put myself emotionally to how I felt, just as a viewer on that day. Worried that our constitution was about to be overthrown. Yeah,
1: you, that was that was scary for all of us. That's where I yes. come down on that one, especially when I see, you know, people attacking law enforcement with sticks and clubs yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, you just can't have that be tolerated,
0: right? But judges are in tough positions. Michael, uh, I almost called you Michael Leroy. No, that's the next guest, Michael Leonard. Boy, it's been a great conversation again. Oh, in a couple weeks, you're going to be back, and we have a judge on, as you've been talking about, too. Yeah,
1: we've enlisted uh, Judge Rebecca Palmeyer, who is the chief judge of the Federal District Court here in Chicago, and a very interesting person, had a very interesting career before she hit the bench, and now that she's on the bench, she leads the court, and is just a very approachable person, normal no no, judge-itis there, John. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. Look forward to that conversation. Michael, have right. a good one. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take, take care. Take care. All right, let's take a break. Then we'll talk to Professor, L- Professor Leroy after this on WGN.